If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. On today's episode, we are exploring post-truth and alternative perspectives. Can we call out lies and deception while still allowing for radically different ways of seeing? To discuss post-truth, we are joined by philosopher Sasha Golob, sociologist Steve Fuller, theoretical philosopher Orsa Wickforce, and journalist Peter Pomerantsev. It's still useful, of course, up to a point, to have different perspectives. Why? Because different perspectives force us to sharpen our arguments, to engage with possible bias and uh, errors that we make. Uh, it's the idea of the good debate, of the good seminar, where even though it's pretty clear that one person has the better arguments, let's, let's sharpen them, let's, let's, let's check that we haven't made a, mi- a mistake, an error. If you enjoyed today's episode, Don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iai.tv. Back now to our host for this week's debate, Joanna Cavena. Thank you. So it seemed that we'd all got used to the idea that rather than there being a single definitive truth, there are a multiplicity of competing and alternative perspectives. Now, with the rise of fake news and publicizing of blatant lies, we want to reassert the importance of accuracy and truth. Can we call out lies and deception while still allowing for radically different ways of seeing? Is there a difference between truth within a perspective and truth that extends to all perspectives? Or should we simply conclude that postmodernism and relativism were a dangerous mistake? So the question, and I'll pose it first to Sasha Golob, is can we allow for multiple perspectives yet still call out falsehoods and lies? Sasha, thank you. Three minutes on that. Thanks, Joanna. Uh, First off, thanks to everyone for for coming. So what's interesting about this debate is the way the political and the conceptual bleed into each other, right? So this is a philosophical question. It's also a political question. Um, A nice anecdote that shows that a couple of years ago, I was doing some work with a a group that supports um, the disabled and uh, particularly disabled refugees. And as you can imagine, their politics is very left wing. And they'd had all these posters made that they put up. Um, 
they were kind of placards that they'd had made. Um, and they'd had them made about four or five years ago. And one of them said, everyone has their own truth. And they put this up and then they said, well, actually, we're a bit embarrassed about this one now. It sounds kind of rather Trumpian. And so they, they sort of took it down again. But when they'd had that made, that seemed to them an integral part of a sort of leftist political program, that it was about hearing the truth of the disadvantaged, something like that. So this idea of multiple truths of everyone having their own truth, where you place that on the political spectrum may change over time, and it may depend on your other political commitments. So that's, um, we'll hear a lot more about the politics, obviously. On the conceptual side, multiple perspectives are often going to be a useful thing, right? You often have multiple perspectives because they're different parts of one large true story. So suppose you're trying to understand the UK labor market. You've got the perspective of the Bank of England. You've got the perspective of a small business owner. You've got the perspective of a 50-year-old woman in Wokington trying to find work. Okay, they've all got different perspectives. We need all those perspectives because they're all little glimpses of the big story. Having lots of perspectives is perfectly compatible with having a kind of ranking. And it's perfectly compatible with some of them not being very good. It's perfectly compatible with some of them being grossly misleading. So at the moment, I've got a good perspective on you. Okay, I can see you all. Okay, you've got a good perspective on me. Now, if I take these off, my perspective's got a lot worse. Can't see you so well. If I come and sit behind Orsa and peer out from behind the chair, first I'm going to look a, an odd guy, but my perspective's going to get even worse, right? And your perspective on me is probably going to get even worse in every sense. So you can have the idea of lots of perspectives, and you can have the idea of a ranking of them. That's quite natural. Something that I think is particularly important in this debate, and the last thing I'll say is, is the idea of debunking views by talking about people's perspectives. So this is when you say, you only think that because, or you just believe that because. So you, know, you only believe in Brexit because you're a racist, or you only believe in Brexit because you don't know the arguments, or you only um, believe in social justice because you're a snowflake, or whatever. So these because arguments are basically saying, I'm not going to engage with the views you're putting forward because I think your perspective is driving them. They're not rationally defensible views. It's your perspective that's leading you to, to this position. And so I'm going to debunk you by pointing out that perspective. And these are important in a democracy to have these debunking arguments, but also quite dangerous if you don't use them carefully because they effectively say, we're not going to engage with the argument of this group. And it's going to lead very often to that group becoming radically alienated because it's going to think its arguments aren't being heard. It's just being dismissed as a snowflake, as a white guy, as a racist or whatever. And that group is going to become radically quite unhappy quite quickly. So multiple perspectives, often a good thing. You can rank them and be careful of these debunking arguments. You only believe it because just you just think that because of your race, your gender, whatever. Those are often going to be important, but they're also often going to be dangerous. Thank you, Sasha. That's great. Um, I'd like to turn now to... Oh, yep. And, of course... Thank you. Now to also for the same question. Can we allow for multiple perspectives yet still call out falsehoods and lies? Also, thank you. Yes, so I absolutely think we can if we do it right. So let me start by connecting a little bit with this comments here. Because I think what was good about the talk about different perspectives was precisely that it was a way to get more knowledge to get more uh, truths, as it were. Um, so take the, the, the classic case of you know, how we describe our history. So if you describe history just from the perspective of the rulers or from white men and so on, you're going to, get, um, you're going to miss out on a lot of knowledge. You're going to not have knowledge about what it was like for the women and for the children and for, for the sick and so on. 
so the point of adding perspectives there is to add more knowledge. Um, and uh, that's something we, we have this, we always have a selection problem. We can't describe everything that happened in history. Uh, so we make some selection. And there's always a very big danger that our selection is very skewed by our politics or by our backgrounds and so on. And then all this talk, other people coming into the academy, all this talk about bringing in other perspectives is really, really helpful. And we should remember that. So that does, that's not in itself saying there is no truth, right? But it's just a way of saying that we need to do this to get to the truth, to get to a richer picture of reality. That's really important. Um, so that said, I think um, there are, of course, situations where you have incompatible perspectives on the same thing, on the same statement, as it were. When we, we have, in contemporary world, we have, I'm talking factual statements like, whether vaccines uh, cause autism and climate change, whether that's caused by carbon dioxide emissions and so on. When you have those sort of clashes, um, obviously they can both be right. Obviously, I say, but <laughs> as an analytic philosopher, I think clearly they can both be right. Truth is a property of this statement uh, that it has or doesn't have. And so one person is going to be wrong there. It's still useful, of course, up to a point, to have different perspectives. Why? Because different perspectives force us to sharpen our arguments, to engage with possible bias and uh, errors that we make. Uh, it's the idea of the good debate, of the good seminar, where even though it's pretty clear that one person has the better arguments, let's, let's sharpen them, let's, let's, let's check that we haven't made a, a mistake, an error. And we know, I mean, there's some nice um, research showing Indeed, that when people, when it comes to confirmation bias, for example, which is this tendency we have, we all have to confirm our own views, we're really, really bad at getting past confirmation bias when we do it alone. But when we engage in dialogue with other people so that have slightly different perspectives that are willing to question us, we very quickly can get past our confirmation bias. So different perspectives can be useful, even though we are in a situation where we can't all be right. Just one more thing, of course, one thing when people talk about different perspectives, which is also very legitimate, is that we're talking about people's experiences. And of, you know, we have different experiences of the same thing. And even when my experiences are not actually kind of corresponding to what happened, it's important to bring out what I did experience, because maybe I got very scared or very upset, trying to understand my perspective. That's also legitimate. It has nothing to do with truth. <laughs> but uh, because, uh, except that, of course, there are truths about my experiences that can be very important to understand me and to understand the dynamics of what's going on. So that's also one sense in which it's perfectly fine to talk about different perspectives without losing sight of truth and knowledge. So, yeah. Thank you, also. I'd now like to turn to Steve Fuller with the same question. Can we allow for multiple perspectives yet still call out falsehoods and lies, Steve? Okay, well, first of all, let me say um, it's, I made a point of wanting to be introduced as the person who's going to defend post-truth, and the way I'm going to do it is by saying that the multiple perspectives have always been there, and the issue is how do we actually get to some kind of consolidated notion of truth in relation to which we can judge the different perspectives. I think that's kind of the way you have to look at the situation. In other words, you should not start by assuming there's already a truth out there. Rather, you should start with the assumption that there are multiple perspectives, and then the question becomes, as a, as a, you know, a question of history or sociology or even normative philosophy, about how do we get to something called the truth? And the way we have done that historically has been by imposing a certain kind of standard on the way in which we judge these multiple perspectives. 
Okay? And that is ultimately a power game about who establishes the standard, right? And because that's going to end up determining the conditions for the possibility of what can count as true or false. Right? Because the main problem for most of human history hasn't been that people have believed false things, right? The problem has been that a lot of stuff has just been excluded because they couldn't actually be understood in terms of the standards. Right, so the issue, so this is why in the book that I've recently written called Post-Truth, Knowledge is a Power Game, that I talk about it as a power game. Because what is the game about? The game is about establishing the standards by which we have, by which we determine what can count as possibly true or false. And of course, the most important, you know, um, standard that we have in the modern era has been the scientific method, right? The, and, and in a sense, if you understand the scientific method, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Namely, that before we can talk about whether something is true or, or false, we have to put it in a certain form, right? And if the and if this proposition or the statement or the hypothesis cannot be put in a certain form, it's just not there scientifically, right? And as we know, there's a lot of stuff from the standpoint of the scientific method that just doesn't exist, even though it exists for a lot of people, okay? Um, and it seems to me that this is kind of, in a way, the post-truth condition is in a way challenging the idea that there are these uniform standards. There's this one standard. And it's kind of opening up the game in a sense. And, and in a sense, you know, pointing out to people. And this is what I think is actually valuable about the post-truth condition. Namely, that it is a contested space. Right? There are lots of different standards in operation. And I think the internet has been incredibly valuable in this regard by providing alternative channels outside of the normal academic channels, outside of the normal journalistic channels, right? Whatever kind of normal channels there have been, the internet provides this kind of alternative space, which then allows people to explore different sorts of standards by which they evaluate what is true and false. And at the end of the day, I think this is actually progress in democracy. Because at the end of the day, democracy is about people deciding for themselves what to believe and willing to absorb the consequences of what they believe. And, as, and, and so insofar as we claim to be living in a liberal democracy, we should be welcoming the post-truth condition. Great. Thank you, Steve. And now to Peter, finally, with the same question. Can we allow for multiple perspectives yet still call out falsehoods and lies? Thanks, Peter. <clears throat> I'm slightly intimidated to be on a panel full of, full of actual philosophers. I, um, my background is in making reality shows and then living in Russia and working in the media. And What's the difference? Well, you can be more perfect for post-truth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But as, as, as you mentioned, so I run a little institute that uh, kind of looks at the new disinformation and propaganda campaigns. And looking, there's something really sort of specific that's happened for people who work, who work on, on the things that I think about. Um, speaking truth to power was really kind of the mission of journalism. There's always this sense that, aha, we have found the evidence, bad man. Here it is. Here's the piece of paper. And, you know, the politician would dissolve in front of us. And, and we seem to be, that, that, that principle doesn't seem true that so much anymore. And that's, that makes our life very, very difficult. Uh, our life as in people who, who think about media and journalism and, and politics. And I'll give, you, I'll give you one example, going back to the Cold War. 1980, the Soviets uh, created a disinformation campaign that was quite legendary called Operation Infection, where they tried to sort of establish that the CIA 
um, created AIDS as a weapon with which, with, with which to attack the Afro-American population. But the way they create this disinformation is a huge effort to make their lies seem like the truth. So they, you know, they have these pseudo, or actually maybe real academics in East Germany who raise this story. They push it slowly across sort of different geographies until it spreads across the whole world, and it feels genuine, and they want it to feel genuine. And when Gorbachev is called out on this by, um, by Reagan in 87, Gorbachev is appalled, like, how dare you say that the great Soviet objective, scientific, utopian Soviet Union would lie? We believe in objective Marxist truth. We wouldn't lie. Um, 30 years later, Putin, you know, on TV, talking to the whole world, are there any Russian soldiers in Crimea? Mr. Putin, the journalists ask, he goes, um, no, even though kind of smirking, knowing like, you know, knowing that he knows that you know that everyone knows there are. And he goes, those soldiers there, you know, they just bought some like military equipment in the local shops. And a couple of weeks later, he's rewarding Russian media and, and soldiers for, for having annexed Crimea. Um, he's not really lying the way Gorbachev was trying to construct this complicated, you know, fake reality. He's basically saying, I don't care about the facts. Boris Johnson, we catch him lying, doesn't matter. Trump, we catch him lying, it doesn't matter. That's a huge change. That makes our job very difficult. And in my new book, I try to sort of get to the root of this, but not through philosophy, but just through kind of the practical use of political discourse. I think the big thing that's changed is not pluralism which brings with it you know, the contested reality to talk about, there's something else that's changed that we have to factor into this discussion. Both the Soviet Union and democratic capitalism in the 20th century were trying to establish some version of the future. They had an idea of an objective, enlightenment, scientific method future they were establishing. That disappears in Russia in the uh, late 1980s. By the early 1990s, it's gone completely. Here, I think that idea of a coherent future collapses in political discourse after the financial crisis and many other disasters. And what do all these people have in common? Putin, Bolsonaro, Orban, Trump, Boris, our crap little Trump. Um, they have no idea of the future. They are all nostalgists. And it's, so it's this larger framework of not having a practical future that you're trying to establish, which, is, which has gone missing. So the pluralism is one factor, and this lack of a sort of very pragmatic future-oriented discourse is the other. Because you have 12 more seconds. It's a reality TV countdown. So we're going to start in this discussion by just defining terms, you know, like good panellists and discussants. What is post-truth anyway? Um, the OED dictionary definition, when it called it word of the year in 2016, I think was referring to emotion rather than facts. So... Steve, as someone who's written about it, yeah. would you like to give us a clarion clear definition of yes. this? Yes, well, word? the thing is that this Oxford English Dictionary definition of post truth, right, the appeal to emotion over fact that was just mentioned, is a post truth definition of post truth because it's, because it's obviously being skewed from a certain kind of standpoint, right? Uh, because obviously the assumption that's being made here is that somehow emotion and reason are opposed and emotion is the bad guy. Right, and from the standpoint of getting at the truth. I think this is kind of an assumption of the way the definition is framed. I think a more useful way of thinking about post-truth, in, the, in, the, in line with the sort of thing I said in my initial comments, is that post-truth involves going to what philosophers call the second order. Right, so in other words, um, imagine you're, you're, you know, let's say you're, 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 you want to figure out what's true and false. You have to presuppose certain things already. 
You have to presuppose how you decide what's true and false. You have to presuppose a method. You have to be able to agree on what evidence is, right? All that kind of stuff you have to agree on. Now, supposing you get into a space where you don't actually agree on that stuff, right? So in other words, it's co what's contested is what counts as evidence, right? What the standards are by which truth and falsehood are judged, right? That's the second order, okay? That's when you're actually talking about what game you're playing, right? Rather than who wins or loses in a particular game. And the post-truth condition is about raising the game that way. And that's why you see that the kinds of things that we typically associate with post-truth, even in the so-called fake news area, is typically about providing alternative channels, like Breitbart News, for example, right? Alternative channels by which people are getting information, which in a sense establish a kind of alternative standard, as it were, of what truth is, right? And that is what causes the problem of post-truth, is that it's not just that people are lying. I think lying has very little to do with the issue. I think rather people are changing the standards, and they're changing the standards in a way that the establishment is not used to, right? And it's kind of a, a little bit kind of, you know, uh, dis, you know it's, it's sort of unbalanced as a result. And so lying then gets used as a term of art to characterize that. But it's really talking about offering alternative standards by which to judge what is true and false. Okay, so also just alternative standards. Would you no, agree or No, I don't think that's right at all. I mean, there is such a debate about whether, I mean, you know, creationism, they don't believe in the scientific method, so they, they believe in revelation and other sorts of standards for collecting knowledge. Uh, Post-truth is not, it, that's not what's characteristic. In fact, if you look at uh, conspiracy theorizing and if you look at people who uh, uh, have, uh, you know, science denial, they're quite scientific in their mindset. They just don't think that the science supports the view that they believe in. What is true, so it's, I really don't think it's a meta, meta issue. What is true is that there is a belief in different channels. That's quite right, but that's not a meta issue. That's about the institutions and where your trust goes. So uh, the liberal democracy for hundreds of years now have rested on the idea that we have certain knowledge institutions that work pretty well and that we can trust. Uh, we can get knowledge from researchers, so we can get knowledge from established media and so on. That trust has been there. That trust is now being dissolved. Not because people don't accept this sort of standard view of evidence and scientific method and so on, but because they think there are other channels that are more reliable when it comes to getting to the truth through standard views of evidence. So they believe, for example, that um, established media, if, not, if they don't lie, at least they certainly try to uh, hide all these facts about immigration, for example. So therefore, you have to go to Breitbart News to get the facts about immigration. That's not a meta issue. That's the question of trust. Um, so, yeah. Okay. Um, I just want to bring Sasha in on this question. You said you can debunk too much. You can kind of alienate. This question of what authority do you appeal to if you say that something's false? Who are, and what also is also saying on this? Yeah, so, I mean, it's... You've got this issue of trust. You've got this issue of what are, what are reliable institutions. Um, I mean, I guess one way to put it is sometimes I'm not so much worried about fake news as comforting news, right? So generally, it's pretty comforting to be told that people we disagree with are relying on completely polluted and irrational methods. Um, and so I think a lot of us are often victims of a certain kind of consensus forming whereby we consume these debunking explanations about the other side. So we're told that what's gone wrong with the other side is that they're relying on methods that are fundamentally illusory, they're fundamentally irrational, that are fundamentally purely emotive. Um, and as a result, we don't feel the need to engage with them. And this kind of comforting news is, is I think, politically dangerous. Um, and you can just ask yourself, next time you're at an event, 
do you think 90% of the people in the room agree with what you thought when you walked in the door? Okay. Most of the time, that's probably true. Do you think that 90% of the speakers agree with what you thought when you walked in the door? Most of the time, that's probably true. Do you think that any of them is going to say anything radically against what you thought when you walked in the door? Most of the time, that's probably not true. So you have this kind of comforting news, and it's a danger. I mean, you think back to Rush Limbaugh, right? There's this anecdote at the start. Limbaugh's terrible at debating, okay? So his phone-ins aren't really about debating. You ever hear him debate? He's, he's appalling. Okay? So it's not about argument. It's about community. People who share antecedent views with Rush ring up and get them validated. That's not fake news so much as comforting news. But what we've got to worry about is whether there's also comforting news on our side of the argument as well. Okay? And are we all right now getting our nice weekend dose of comforting news? That's what worries me more than fake news. I want to bring Peter in what you're saying about Russia and the example where people just kind of fall into latitude because nothing is true or there's no possibility of acquiring a sense of truth. I mean, you were talking about troll farms in your book. I mean, with troll farms, there's a kind of deliberate inversion of truth and fiction, isn't there? There's a kind of sense that there is, something is true, but you're deliberately pumping out lies. Black becomes white. So how does that relate to our discussion about what truth is? Well, uh, I, I think there's at least two things going on here. Um, Without a doubt, um, the big switch in, I think not just Russian propaganda, but propaganda generally, in an age of information abundance, it, it isn't to convince people necessarily of, you know, here is the big story that you have to cleave to. It's the opposite. It's to see doubt through many technologies, through kind of cognitive ways, by saying that truth is unknowable, you'll never know it, uh, through conspiracy theories, which give you the sense that you'll never get to the facts because everything is... Uh, a secret campaign by someone who's hidden behind uh, some secret stage. Uh, um, and also through kind of like uh, technological means by flooding uh, the zone. Uh, and in that murk, in this murky world where you'll never find the truth, uh, you kind of, you look to strong leaders and strong men to guide you through the murk. So, so that's a very, you know, that's a political tactic. But I think it's very important to think about this kind of, uh, the, the comfort news thing. Because uh, no doubt that exists already. But, but I think social media has made that worse uh, by rewarding uh, forms of group behavior, sort of likes and shares, uh, you know, in order to, to sort of you know, exalt yourself in a community to get more likes and shares. There's been you know, many years of study of group polariza polarization theories. You go to the most extreme positions, not necessarily the most factual positions. Uh, and the structure of social media pushes you away from deliberative debate and towards uh, taking the most extreme position possible where you know, factuality is not top. So even as we escape kind of maybe, uh, as my colleagues were saying, uh, sort of like one form of like relationship where, where power dominated knowledge, uh, we have to be very careful that another form of power isn't being exerted through technology, which guides knowledge in strange ways as well. I don't think we're, you know, emerging to this pure space of alternative narratives. Actually, another form of power is, is appearing. So we do have to be aware of that as well. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month. And there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Yes, yeah, Steve, I mean, we're going to move vaguely into our next theme, which is about 
really what we've already touched on that, you know, how do you expose lies if everything's a matter of perspective and what Peter was talking about. And this question really of, you know, is there any hope for the journalist, the campaigning journalist, who's trying to speak truth to power, if you're saying that the post-truth definition is also post-truth? I, I, look, I, I don't like this discussion of lying, but I do think Asa brought up a very important point, if I can return to, uh, because I think what she said was correct in, in that part of what's going on in post-truth, right, is that you're getting these alternative perspectives that very often actually present themselves as being, you know, according to the scientific method and so forth, and part of their argument is that the people who are supposedly upholding the scientific method or some accepted standard of truth are in fact hypocrites. They're in fact leaving stuff out, right? And I think that's also part of the post-truth agenda, right? The post-truth agenda is in a sense a bit like the Protestant Reformation was with regard to the Catholic Church. So if you imagine the scientific method and the New York Times and the Guardian and all these arbiters of truth that we normally, we, we, the, the point is the post-truth people are saying these guys are hypocrites. They claim to be the arbiters of truth, but you can show that in fact they're, they're, they're sort of excluding stuff. They're not actually allowing things to be said. They're, they're censoring various alternative perspectives and so forth. So very much part of the post-truth argument is by hoisting people by their own petard. Okay, it is an argument against hypocrisy, right? So, so in that respect, right, in a sense, they, are they claim to be abiding by the same standards. And I think this applies to a lot of the alternative science stuff, right? They, they claim to be abiding by the same standards as the normal science, but the normal scientists will not actually even entertain their hypotheses to begin with. So there's an exclusion a priori. And I think that is very much, I think that from the standpoint of, of, of because what, what I think is going on here is ultimately a kind of institutional battle, right? Because in a sense, what we call standards of truth, like it or not, has been pretty much a monopoly hold, right? Relatively few institutions pretty much dictate the truth for everyone. Whether we're talking about journalism or academia or whatever, we're talking about an elite structure. And that is actually what is being challenged, the institutional aspect of this. Um, Sasha, that seems like I'm going to come to you as well because I want to ask you more about alternative facts. But Sasha, I just want to refer back to what you were saying as well about, you know, that there are all these perspectives and it's good to draw them in. Would you then agree with some of what Steve's saying? Yeah, to, to some degree. I mean, so sometimes with these debates, you end up saying something so, so obvious that you feel kind of stupid saying it, but it's still worth saying, right? Which is, there are going to be cases and cases. So there are going to be cases where you think, yeah, you know, maybe there is an entrenched bias in these institutions and we need, we need a fresh look at things. You know, if you look at the demographic profile of, say, Guardian journalists, okay, they famously all, or almost all attended Oxbridge, they famously all, or almost all share certain political uh, views. So there are going to be cases where this kind of approach works. On the other hand, right, there are all kinds of cases where the institutional structures are dominant for a reason. So anti-vax, for example, okay? The scientific method has proven itself to be a very robust, reliable guide to finding stuff out. Breitbart is not a very robust, reliable guide to finding stuff out. If you start shifting from one to the other, soon you're all gonna have measles and you're gonna die. Okay, so there's a kind of brute force, and as I say, it's so obvious one feels stupid saying it, but it's sometimes it needs to be said. There's a kind of brute force here eventually that you can't out-perspective reality because reality will bite you on the arse and you'll end up dead. <laughs> And that's reassuring. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's, that's the good news. Huh? Yes, that's reassuring. <laughs> and 
So also you've, I mean, you're, you're the author of a book entitled Alternative Facts. And obviously that was one of the great moments, wasn't it, in this kind of strange world we've entered where Kellyanne Conway yeah, great. uses phrases. <laughs> could, you, could you remind us of this and explain? Well, it was friends? after uh, uh, Trump was in, in, inaugurated in, in uh, January 2017. And when, of course, he was standing there in front of the audience saying, oh, my God, it's the largest audience ever. Uh, and then very quickly, some evil journalists pointed out, no, in fact, there were tons more people at Obama's inauguration. And then it became a brawl with the press, and the press said to, uh, you know, the uh, Trump administration, why are you starting out your thing, your whole presidency by a lie? <laughs> it's a really strange thing to do. And then this Kellyanne Conway, her, uh, Trump's spokesperson, was uh, sent out to deal with the situation. Um, and they said, so, you know, why are you, you know, the administration denying obvious facts? What, you know? And she's like, no, 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 we are presenting alternative facts. And that's how it came about. And the journalist who was interviewing her, and I don't remember his name, but he was immediately, alternative facts? What's that? He kind of got that this was a strange concept. Isn't just false, that just falsehoods. And of course, it's not like she believes in alternative facts. She was struggling to deal with a very difficult situation. And she said later that what she meant was uh, they were giving alternative information. And that was true, of course. It was just that that information was false. <laughs> so... Um, but I, I picked it as the name of my book because it's become so emblematic for what's going on. It's, it has a quasi-philosophical kind of ring to it, which is fun for a philosopher. Uh, so I can say things about why there are no alternative facts, which I do in my book. Uh, but it also is, you know, everything is alternative these days. There's alternative media and there's the alternative right and there's the alternative this and that. So it's all, sort of just captured a lot of what's going on in this alternative world that we're living in now somehow. So that, that was where it came from. Yeah. And a lot of her claims were refuted with reference to mass transit numbers and to eyewitnesses. Oh, yeah. So and that was kind of lose that. Yeah. It was such a perfect... Uh, exemplification what's going on because then of course the scientists or the, the researchers and the journalists were all like well look at these pictures so there was pictures of the crowd uh, density and there are crowd experts believe it or not and they could calculate the number of people looking at the pictures of the density of the crowd and they were looking at you know the number of tickets sold on the subway and the bus mass transit in the in dc um, so they were putting forth all this evidence and then what happens then what happens is precisely what i'm talking about a lot, which is then people just say, well, yeah, but that's the elite. That's the, you know, these researchers, they're all in on this. Why should we trust them instead of Trump's experience of it having been the biggest audience ever? Um, and I really think the heart of the matter, I think post-truth is post-trust. I think that is the heart of the matter. There's a loss of trust to important knowledge institutions. And that, I think, is a disaster in, in the following sense. Knowledge is, we have a division of labor when it comes to knowledge. We can't all, each of us collect knowledge that we spread through language. We can't all know everything. We need to trust on others. We need to trust on reliable actors. And when there's a bunch of alternative sources out there that are not reliable, it's going to not end well. We will all get measles and die or the bridge will collapse like it did in Italy. Great. And actually, thank you very much also. You very helpfully moved us into our third theme. And yes, round of applause for that. Um, so the question of our last part of the debate before we turn to you is this question really of can we change our culture? Can we kind of maintain democracy um, when there are all these different perspectives? Exactly what you're saying. How do we reestablish trust while maintaining the sceptical inquiry that Steve has also talked about? And so, Peter, I wanted to turn to you on this. I mean, 
you've written a lot about this, about how to re-establish trust, about, and you've talked about the need within journalism to have trusted authorities and also a kind of return to reality. Would you like to take this and begin? Well, listen, we're, we're basically experimenting with this at our, at our little um, tiny little think tank of the LSE. So our approach is, um, we're going to be quite, try to be quite empirical. But the kind of the, uh, um, sort of the premise that we're working from uh, is that trust emerges under um, very specific conditions. If any of you have been at one of these god-awful corporate trainings over a weekend, they will sort of force you to do stuff together to generate trust. So in my sense, with a very narrow problem of the loss of trust in, in the lamestream media, um, is that uh, we always rather arrogantly said, we're the fourth estate. We represent the people. But were we really? Were we really helping them? I think trust in media shoots up when media can prove that they're doing something that is useful to people. So the great New Yorker story about you know, poisoned water in Flint, Michigan. So that's what we want to test. If, if news starts being much more useful for people, is trust then generated because you're doing something together. But that's hard for a lot of media because a lot of media likes being above the fray. They see themselves almost in this kind of like, you know, Elysian field of objectivity. Um, I'm not sure we can return to that. I'm not saying that should be cast away. I think Reuters or the BBC can continue doing that. That's fine. But I think we probably need a new movement that really is on the edge of activism and, and, and journalism. Uh, that'll come with its own risks, because that could be seen as biased. So it's not going to be easy. But that's, that's what I'd like to test. Um, and I think actually almost all our great institutions of liberal democracy that are under consistent attack now, the courts, medical profession, uh, they're always thought to be kind of secure in their trust. I think they now have to go through a very serious audit trying to understand how to make themselves trusted again. And one more quick question to you. I mean, also about harmful content online and this. So obviously there's a judge there. There's a required judge of what harmful content is. So is that something, or troll farms, they rely on that relativism to continue, but should that be legislated against? Um, I would be very, very careful. Uh, the legislative legis instinct with the sort of floods of nonsense out there has been to try to regulate content, uh, you know, catch fake news. I think that's a sort of a, I mean, I would, there are a lot of people on Facebook that I would love to regulate. Some of them, you know, some of them are my, are my best friends. But it's absurd. <laughs> the internet is not like the BBC. I mean, I would love to call, like, you know, Ofcom and say, I've seen my mate make a comment on Facebook that is not balanced or accurate. Can you go after my mate, please? I mean, it's ridiculous. It's a complete misunderstanding of how the internet works. Regulating these billions and billions and billions of pieces of content, I think, is, is impossible and probably harmful itself. So I think the regulation which is needed has to be about something else. It has to be about regulating deceptive behavior. So if something online is a coordinated, inauthentic campaign, uh, but it's pretending to be genuine, that should be regulated. So it's the behavior that needs to be regulated and, and not the content. Steve, do you want to come in on this? Because, yes, it strikes me, you then need to have some sense of inauthenticity within that. I, I think with discussions like this, and I would just ask the people in the audience to think for themselves about what they think democracy entails if we actually extend it indefinitely, okay? I think one of the problems that we have when we think about democracy here is that we sort of imagine that all the people who are currently not enfranchised, right, will eventually come to be like us, right? They'll come to think like us, right? In our extensions with regard to health and education and all the rest of it that's been involved in social progress over the last 200 years has kind of operated on the assumption Right, that it sort of begins from an elite standpoint and then all, everyone else sort of believes the sort of things we do once we give them a voice and they've been sufficiently educated. 
Well, we're now in a position where people are sufficiently educated. They do have a voice. They do have access through the internet, for example, and other kind of alternative media. And they're saying things differently from what the elites had expected. That's democracy. Okay, so the point is, this is a point in the history of democracy, and it requires that we kind of rethink what we exactly we're dedicated to. And I think one of the ways you can see this is in terms of this business about you know, catching Breitbart or whomever, you know, having propagated fake news and so forth. That's wonderful, uh, but I think one of the things perhaps people don't realize is that these alternative media, these alternative sciences and so forth, also spend a lot of time catching the mainstream media in errors and omissions and so forth. Okay? Uh, I mean, and, and this, this goes without, this doesn't get mentioned, right? And I think one of the issues that's going to face any kind of democratic citizen in the future is that they're going to have to weigh, right? So if, so if Breitbart says the New York Times got X, Y, and Z false, and the New York Times says that, you know, Breitbart got X, Y, and Z false, right? They're going to have to weigh what the relative merits of those things are, and that is what a democracy demands. And that is the post-truth condition, and in a sense, if you're really committed to democracy, you should be able to embrace that and be willing to live with the consequences. Thank you. Actually, I'm going to turn to Sasha as well on this. Should then the individual take responsibility, you know, refuse to drink the poison, refuse to, as you said, you know, refuse to read the site that says, you know, you'll end up sort of taking this advice and dying. I mean, this is, we, we then turn it into ourselves if we want a democratic society. To, to some degree, but I, I mean, I, I worry that you end up with lots of the same problems you end up with, with forms of libertarianism, right? Which is that, um, even if you want a democratic playing field, there are going to be some domains where we're just not all equally qualified to contribute. Okay? I have no knowledge about the effectiveness of vaccinations. I have no knowledge about the effectiveness of many of the disease, diseases involved. Okay? If I start um, convincing other people with no knowledge of these things through force of charisma or through uh, making them afraid or whatever, that they should stop vaccinating their kids, that's not a brave act of democratic participation in the debate. That's someone fundamentally lacking in expertise, muddying the waters in a way that's profoundly dangerous. So you can have democracy while still recognizing some notion of expertise. And if you end up saying, well, it's all on the individual, he or she should make their own choices, they're going, it becomes close to the problem you get with libertarianism, which is we've got to recognize that in some specialized areas, vaccination, we're not all adequately capable of assessing the evidence. If we were, there would be no need to train people for 15 years in vaccination science. So you can keep some notion of democracy while also recognizing some notion of expertise. And if you don't, as I say, things will get very unpleasant very fast. Okay, I want to, I want to come to the audience. Thank you. Um, I just want to give our kind of speakers a really quick chance. Sasha, I'll take that as your sort of roughly culminating remarks. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Also, would you like to just quickly respond? Yes, completely. And this is in the nature of knowledge. Human knowledge is vast and amazing and complex, and each and every one of us can know very little, which means we have to trust other people. Democracy does not function if we all think that I can figure it out for myself through experience. What I have to figure out for myself is who is trustworthy? Why should I trust this expert? Is this person actually an expert on what she or he is talking about? I need to check my institutions, check that they are functional, that there are internal mechanisms of uh, fact-checking and, and explore. Uh, and finding error and bias. So I need to check the institutions and keep a check on those, but I can't check all the facts. It's just not in our power to do that. And that's just the fact of human knowledge and human existence. Thank you. Steve, would you like to make some concluding remarks? Okay, I, 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 yes, and specifically starting from what Sasha has just said, I think the problem with the vaccination issue isn't so much that I don't know whether the vaccine works, et cetera. 
I think the issue, and this is the important issue with regard to worrying about libertarianism, is the consequences of people taking certain decisions for everyone else who didn't take that decision, right? I mean, I think that's why the vaccination issue sort of stands out in a certain way, because this is a kind of decision where, you know, it really matters in a sense for everyone you know, how it's decided. So it has to be decided collectively. And there are certain decisions that do have to be decided collectively, okay? Uh, but there are a lot of issues where, which can be decided individually and that people have to judge for themselves when they think they know enough. And here I would just say, democracy actually doesn't rest on trust. I think this is a completely bogus idea. It actually rests on things like checks and balances and separation of powers. In other words, the fact that power is controlled and, and is a, there's a way of kind of checking and asking for validation and asking for accountability. So in other words, you're sort of stuck with the leaders you've got. You don't have to trust them in some kind of absolute sense. And the same applies to experts. What you have to do, though, is be able to hold them accountable. And that's why all of the, com the, the constitutions of democratic societies, especially complex democratic societies, have been ones with separation of powers and checks and balances, largely because you actually distrust the people in power and you want to be able to hold them accountable. Read the US Constitution. Thank you. And Peter, your brief concluding remarks. I don't know. I think, I think facts are generally very unpleasant things. Um, they tell me that you know, I'm a little bit jet lagged and you know, I'm struggling to sort of string sentences together. You know, they remind one of the state of one's bank balance. They, um, they remind one, actually, ultimately, that one is going to die. And I think there is a huge pleasure and joy in rejecting facts. And I don't think it's just, you know, I don't think we should be too nostalgic about some rational choice theory about an audience that will weigh up the, you know, the evidence of a Breitbart versus the New York Times. I think that would be fine if, that, if, if that's the process that we're going through socially. I think the pleasure of a Putin, a Trump, a Johnson is that they say fuck off to facts. And there's a, a release there, an ultimate kind of like almost sort of teenage punk rocky sort of release and a joy in that. And, and we have to understand why, especially in the small world of politics and journalism, what, why is that pleasurable right now? Why was that not acceptable as a pleasure 30 years ago? Why did, they even, why did politicians ever bother to pretend they weren't lying? Why did they ever dress up their lies as facts? I mean, obviously lying is like number one in your CV if you're a politician. So until we create conditions where reality matters again, where kind of a fact-based engagement, where we're at least going to have a common debate matters again, then I think we'll, you know, politicians will keep on responding to that. Uh, the solutions lie in technology. Technology has to stop rewarding the sort of behavior that moves you away from deliberation. But also, it goes much, much deeper into how do we generate narratives where facts can matter again. Um, I think pluralism is a, is a vital ingredient in that. We can't go back to the BBC Walter Concrete model. We have to think about how in this, you know, the madness of today's discourse, we can still put together and generate narratives together. It won't be a broadcast model. I think we're talking a completely new game. We haven't even started getting our heads around what is a public debate in the age of Facebook. Great. Thanks so much to you all for coming in. I'd like to thank our speakers, Sasha, Elsa, Steve, Peter. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe and review wherever you listen and tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers.